Welcome to the Ag Emerge Podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening today. Before we join the podcast, we'd like to let you know that Understanding Ag will be hosting a Soil Health Academy on Monty's Farm this summer in Cambridge, Illinois, August 1st through the 3rd. This workshop will focus on implementing regenerative principles in a corn-soy rotation. What a great opportunity to see these concepts in action on the farm with instructors Gabe Brown, Shane New, Luke Jones, and Brian Doherty. Don't miss the powerhouse conversations guaranteed to take place. Head on over to the Soil Health Academy website at www.soilhealthacademy.org and click on the Education tab to see the Soil Health Academy upcoming workshops. And now... Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Garth Mulkey. Garth and his wife, Susan, are fourth-generation seed farmers in western Oregon and have been growing, conditioning, and marketing seeds at the same location since 1966. As dedicated seed producers, they're always focused on seed purity and quality combined with proven genetics. Today, Garth and Monty have a great conversation about their business journey in helping growers adopt cover crops and so much more. So let's jump right in. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. Um, get to be joined today by Garth Mulkey from Oregon, all the way on the left coast, right? Thanks, Garth. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Monty. I appreciate being here. Garth is an amazing farmer, and if you followed him any on social media or have run into him before, first off, he's doing no-till in crops that you're not supposed to be able to do no-till on. And secondly, he probably grows about the most number of crops of anybody that I know. So tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, how you got here, and a little bit about your farm, Garth. Uh, I grew up on this farm. Um, you know, I, I graduated from high school in 83. Uh, farm economy was not good. Interest rates were high. There wasn't much room for me here. And I went and did other things for about 10 years. Um dad wanted to retire one day and I wasn't complacent in the job I had. And, and he said, you, you know, if you don't want to come back, I'm going to sell half of this. And I had just been married about a year and thought I wanted to come back to the farm and raise my family. Um, came back, you know, like many farms that went through the eighties, things were not in the condition you'd want them to be. There just wasn't the money to maintain everything. So so we struggled and worked hard for, you know, 15, 20 years to get things where they are today. Um, through diversification, some downsizing, I made the choice that we were better off to farm less acres and manage them better. Um, and adding irrigation into our program, we built two reservoirs over the years. Uh, we're irrigating 400 acres now. When I was a kid, if we irrigated 30 acres, that was a big year of irrigation. So a lot of diversification, um, more intense management, um, staying close to home, not not farming the highway, and uh, just doing a trying to do the best job we could on the, on the acres close to home and on our high on our productive soils. Well, 
Well, aren't you supposed to get big or, or, or get out? That's the mantra, right? You're supposed to get bigger, bigger, bigger all the time. Well, I think with, well, yeah, yeah, that's what we're told. And, and that's a hard for, as a young farmer, when I came back at 30 years old, that's what I was trying to do. But I wasn't making any profit and farming more acres with no profit didn't make much sense. Well, hold it. You mean you're not supposed to farm more acres and get more yield? You're supposed to look at profit? Apparently, somewhere along the line, I bought a different calculator than everybody uses. else uses. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that calculator, I think it served you well. So tell us about where you're located, Garth, in Oregon. It's a pretty special place. We are in the Willamette Valley. Um, Willamette Valley stretches about 90 miles south of Portland. It's 40 miles wide at the widest point. Um, so I am an hour and a half south of Portland, and I'm 40 miles inland from the Pacific Ocean. I'm just north of the city called Corvallis. So you have a very moderate temperature there, regulated, humid environment, I, I assume. And, and No, it's actually low humidity. Low uh, humidity. Okay. We get a breeze. We get a breeze off the ocean every day, but you know, thirty percent humidity is humid to me. Okay. So it's it's not very humid. Um, we cool off every night. There's crops we can't grow here because we don't have the temperature. Soybeans have been tried several times, and we just don't have enough temperature to grow soybeans because we can be fifty degrees any night of the year. So it's. Uh, but there's a lot of things we grow very well, one of them being seed crops. We have low disease pressure. Um, we have a, because we're cool, generally cool in the growing season, we we have a long time for seed fill, which equates to better yields. And because this has been a seed producing region for a long time, there's a lot of infrastructure as far as seed cleaning and handling and packaging equipment. So... Yeah, and on the seeds, uh, so that that's one of the main reasons we're we're together today is you know cover crops are are all the rage, right? And all the talk and and a lot of those specialty cover crops that we get now we're not talking rye and wheat and and those cereal grains, but we're talking all of the others that go into the mixes, uh, you know, uh, annual ryegrasses and crimson clover, uh, radishes, turnips, all those uh, you know even spinaches, kales, those kind of things. Um, all those are you're you're the uh the place that those things those are grown correct i mean this is the the capital of the united states for that for seed production especially for specialty seed production absolutely um i started out growing radish in 2003 or 4 not for the cover crop market but for the japanese sprouting market and korean sprouting market and and then the cover crop market grew and we were just in the right place at the right time to to participate in that and that's been a very good program for us so yeah. we grow we grow radish seed we grow hairy vetch seed we grow facilia seed uh we grow clover seeds um and then the annual ryegrass those are all products we produce on our farm for the cover crop market and all of those are really core staples in diverse mixes you know, of, yes, they are. Yeah. I mean, those are all number one choices in each one of those categories. I, I do miss the days when people were planting 10 pounds of radish per acre. <laughs> as a, as a, you know, it has certainly changed our cropping program because now two or three pounds of radish is fairly common. So, but we are, we are selling more every year because there's more acres being covered every year. So it's, it's been a good program. I've been glad to be a part of it. I met a lot of good people through this and, uh, and look forward to continuing it in the future.
So how many total crops are, are you growing this year? We have 12 different crops this year. Um, a little bit deceiving because five of those crops are different varieties of grass seed. Well, um, it counts. You can't just throw them all together. Well, no, they, they require different, ma well, they require different management programs. So um, yeah. we've, there was a long time in my career I had a goal of growing a new crop every year. I abandoned that five or six years ago, um, but we're back to it this year. We're growing onions for seed. And that, that's a new one for us. I, I've seen you post some things about that. You you have some strip till and I think probably regular on the onions. How, how are things looking so far? Well, I wish they were all strip till. Um, okay. It's, it's, uh, that was, we just had extra onions and we had some open acres in the field. So we went and did it and they're outperforming the conventional program. I'd say by two to one. I mean, we're a long ways from harvest, but the much better program, much easier on the soil. Uh, you know, we had a very wet spring and the tillage for the onions was just, it was hard on our soils. Um, I try and be a no-till guy as much as I can, but the lure of the dollars of the vegetable seed industry does grab a hold of me and get my attention. So, but we're converting vegetable seed acres to no-till or strip-till uh, where nobody's done that before. So, and you, you can do Pretty that and you utilize transplants then, right? Uh, in we, order to do the small seed stuff? Primarily transplants, yes. We do some direct seed stuff occasionally. Uh, we do grow a specialty sunflower for Japan, which is direct seeded. But yeah, the, the chart we have this year is transplants. Um, the onions we're planting bulbs and then we'll harvest seed in August. The field of spinach behind me, that's from a couple of years ago. That That is a direct seed plant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just a lot of those produce seeds, when they're so, so small, they require such a fine seed bed to make them work. That it's yeah. just pretty impossible to no-till. But if you can get them to a transplant, then no-till, strip-till really, really opens up on those really small veg crops. So Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm excited for the future in the vegetable seed industries. We, I like to try new things, and most of the time it works. I guess I'm just lucky that way. No, it's called being a good farmer, Garth, is what it's oh, called. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, my neighbors say I'm lucky. So, <laughs> so uh, when did your luck start with no-till? Uh, you've been doing this now for, what, 25 years or so? Yeah, I yeah, 25 years ago, we started dabbling with no-till. Um, one of the crops, well, the grass-seeded crops we grow is tall fescue, and we typically leave those fields in for seven to ten years. Mm -hmm. And then when it's time to rotate out, the amount of tillage that was required to go from no-till sod to another crop was horrendous. I mean, we're talking eight or 10 passes of tillage. Just to break up all those root balls, right? That was out there. Exactly, yeah. And the amount of horsepower and diesel that was required was staggering. And I followed no-till for a long time and kind of read all the material out of the Midwest and the East Coast and... I just decided we can no-till wheat into that sod. Or the first one we actually did was triticale. And it was a phenomenal success. And I have not worked fescue sod since that that, that year. Because we'll no-till something into it, let them roots decay, let the ground mellow out. Um, we've got soil, we've got fields on this ground that have been over 20 years no-till now. So you have to have some neighbors that look at you a little, little strange, like, what's he up to now? They do that, and then 
Interestingly enough, the guys across the fence don't really talk to me about it, but I'll run into them at a no-till meeting 40 miles away. So. <laughs> that's how it works. That, that is you not unique to Oregon, okay? That's, that's how <laughs> nationwide. <laughs> But no, that, that's pretty impressive how that works and, and um, you know, consider all of the things that you got going on there. So onions, all these veg crops for seed, uh, you wish people would plant more radishes. We've, we've made note of that, but you've seen a lot of, you've seen, you talking about that, you've seen a lot of changes in the cover crop industry from, from when you got started until today. What, what, what is kind of happening there? What are some of the trends that you see going on in, in cover crops? Well, I mean, diverse blends started probably eight, 10 years ago, and that just continues. Um, other than cereal rye and a little bit of annual ryegrass, I don't know of very many covers that are getting planted as just a straight crop. Um, seems like everything's getting some mixes in it. Uh, what else are we seeing? Acres are going up every year. They really are. I mean, our, our sales, you know, they're not growing by leaps and bounds, but they grow every year. Um, and I think there's a lot of growers who are now in the early days, it was all about chasing government dollars to get them planted. But at this point, a lot of those watersheds or those counties, those programs have expired, but the acres haven't shrunk. So I, people are seeing the value of keeping their ground covered and it's, uh, it's exciting. Um, so do you have enough acres when everybody goes to 100% cover crops, or, or are we going to have to add a few more valleys uh, next to you to cover all It's that? It's going to be a huge problem. I mean, and, and unfortunately, it's going to lead to higher seed prices, and that's probably going to slow it down. And and then they'll come from other parts of the world, sure. um, no doubt about it. So, No, make, makes total sense. So when you grow all this diversity of crops and these obviously aren't uh, uh, crops that, you know, you see every day anywhere, how much equipment do you wind up building of your own to make it possible to plant and cultivate and harvest? And uh, you have to have a pretty much a full-time fab shop to make this happen. Well, I wouldn't say it's full-time, but it's full-time in the winter. Um, we're very fortunate. The vegetable seed crops I grow are for a local contractor and they probably work with 30 to 40 growers in the Willamette Valley, and they own a fair amount of the very specialized equipment. So they'll bring them to my farm and we'll use that. But we built our no-till transplanter. Well, we didn't build the transplanter, but we built a no-till toolbar to go on the front of our transplanter. And we built some fair amount of cultivators and and shielded sprayers and, and uh, you know, some... We built a spike wheel fertilizer applicator. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Yeah. Um, so we can we actually pre put our fertilizer in before we before we uh okay I'm losing a word here uh, before, before we plant. trans before we transplant yeah we're we're putting the fertilizer in the ground before we transplant and then we'll and then we'll use that same tool for side dressing later. Um, some of these crops, there's not a lot of herbicides registered. So I really wanted to index the fertility to the row. So we're feeding the crop and not feeding the weeds. And that's been a very good program for us. That spike wheel that you refer to, if uh, people listening aren't familiar with that, look it up, just spikewheel.com. It's a, it's a, it's probably what, got 12 spikes on it, eight or 12 on a stainless steel wheel. Oh, I think it's and like it, 16. Oh, and it only lets the fertilizer out when the, when it's on the bottom, what, 
10 degrees or something like that. Yeah, sweep 10 or 15 um, degrees when the, when the spike is in the ground. And so the neat part about that is when you have really heavy soils, high clay content, if you run a uh, disc opener through it, it's like putting a stress con uh, crack in concrete. <laughs> and <laughs> what happens is, is as a, you have that really shrink swell clays, it'll just shrink and tear the roots apart right to where that uh, cultivator shank went. And then when you irrigate, it closes back up and then when it dries out, it opens up again. So beautiful part about those spike wheels, is it just puts it right in the ground, just kind of punches it in the ground every, I don't know, probably eight inches or so, 10 inches. And, and it don't, you don't get that stress crack. Is that, is that why you use it too, is on the heavier clay soils? The heavier clay soils. Yeah. We just didn't want the disturbance. If we go, if we go run a sweep through there, we're going to get a flush of weeds. Yeah. So. And do you, do you do that on your uh, perennial grasses too, or do you, is that where you use the the new floater toy? We're using the new floater toy. Um, we're or what often, do you what do you call it? I, we call it a buggy. The buggy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a three wheel on three wheel buggy on big tires. Um, yeah. But no cabs. So I mean, this is this is real farming here, man. Well, we run at eighty hours a year at the most. Oh, I mean, if we okay. if we can't find eighty hours to run without a cab, then we're just wusses, aren't we? I think so. <laughs> yeah, it's got to have leather seats that are air conditioned, don't you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, I hear, I hear about those. <laughs> <laughs> the Aggie Merge podcast is brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. The ASN team is hands-on, digging in and invested in regenerative agriculture, along with the proper plant nutrition and biologicals to boost your soil microbiome. We provide the ideas and implementation guidance to support you on your soil health journey. So stop farming the same way and contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. So, well, that's an example of something that you fab because you're using that early spring, right? For your green up, uh, probably urea application. Most, most of our grasses, we try and have fertilized by the end of March. Yeah. So we're in there in February for the first shot and then middle of March for the second. We get a lot of rain here and we get a lot of seasonal rain. You know, we're 40 inches of rain, um, but it'll quit raining May 1st. And, and it did quit raining May 1st this year. And we may not see rain again till October. Right. So, right. So I found it interesting how you can build your own reservoirs. How is that working? Is that, is, are you pumping water from a well or are you surface water? Uh, surface water for the most part. Um, the last one we built in 2010, we've got about 70 acres of watershed above us that drains into it. Okay. And then if it doesn't fill, we do have a permit to pump out of a creek. And, and top it off. We got to have that done by April 1st. Uh, I've done that three times and, you know, two of those times then it rained eight inches in April. So, I mean, of course, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's good. It's an exercise in tax savings. It's an exercise. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So um, now you're, you're not just doing these annual crops too. Uh, you also have some permanent crops other than grasses. Uh, we've got 25 acres of hazelnuts. Um, currently, the hazel market, nut market, is below cost of production, so they're mostly just for aesthetics this year. Okay, well, yeah, something to keep you busy and out of trouble. Yeah, something like that. So. What? Uh, tell me about the hazelnut market. Don't know much about it. I know it's uh, more of a European uh, nut, and it's kind of an alternative to almonds. Have kind of hurt them a little bit, but uh, what? How? What's the market for that? Where do you sell them? 
Well, there's local local contractors that we sell to who who process them, and then they're doing the end user sales. Um, I believe about half of Oregon's crop is used domestically. The other half has been traditionally going to China. Um, seven or eight years ago, Turkey's the biggest producer in the world. They produce probably 70% of the nuts. And seven or eight years ago, they had two crop failures in a row, and everybody said Turkey was done with nuts, and the Willamette Valley got planted, got uh, overplanted. Well, I wouldn't say we're overplanted, but there was a big push to plant lots of acres here. And at that time, nuts were $2 a pound. Mine went into production three years ago as far as harvesting nuts at a dollar a pound. Uh, what we harvested last year, we sold for 40 cents a pound. Oh, so it's it, as your trees get more mature and you produce more yield, you've, you've ruined the market is what you're saying. Turkey has come back with a vengeance. Oh, okay. They Well, and the other thing, their dollar is so cheap, oh. they can outcompete us on the world market. So, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, well, talk to us a little bit more about the GS3 seed business. I think you have some some branded products that you sell, and then you market that through various, um, you know, direct. You 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 distribute to a dealership or a distributor who then sells it to a farmer. Um, some of the people know some of the some of the brands that you're growing there. Um, I think one that's probably most famous is the Nitro Radish, correct? Yep, we started Nitro Radish in two thousand in January two thousand eleven. Um, that we had a breeding program for a couple of years ahead of that. We did some some selections and some stress trials, and then we took the material to a local seed breeder, and they kind of polished it up for us and got the paperwork done. And so we that is a certified variety with Oregon State. Um, after that, we branded and produced uh, the Harry Vetch product with uh, my good friend, Terry Taylor out of Illinois, uh, which we call TNT Harry Vetch. Uh, from there, we developed the Super B Facilia, which is, wasn't really a breeding program there. It was just a good, a good line that we found that we're producing, um, put a name on it, put a bag to it, been very popular product. Very, uh, we sell it, we sell a, a lot of that to a lot of small outfits who use it in pollinator habitat blends. Um, very happy with that one. And then in two years ago, we purchased KB Seed Solutions. So we brought two, uh, two annual ryegrass varieties into our fold, KB Supreme and KB Crown. So those are, those are now in our product line. We have 25 dealers throughout North America. Um, we started out thinking we were going to sell direct to farmers, but a farmer in Ohio would call me and ask me questions. And I felt really foolish answering questions from 2000 miles away. And we really decided we needed local dealers to work with the customers to give local advice. So that's the model that we ended up going with. Very happy with that. We work uh, well with our growers to try and expand their customer base. And uh, every year we're a sponsor of the National No-Till Conference. We've been, this will be our 10th year coming up in 2024. We bring our dealers to the event. They work the booth with us. We go to dinner at night. We have discussions and we, we really try and grow their business. And we bring them to the booths at the trade shows we go to, to talk to their customers. Because I'm from Oregon. I don't, you know. 
I'd been in a bean field once in my life. So, you know, we really need that local knowledge from our, from our dealer network. And that's really what we tried to develop. So when you're going about and you make these uh, varieties and, and, you know, brand them and certify them and those kind of things, what, I mean, in the, in the help educate people in the cover crop industry, you know, when it comes to, let's say corn, you know, they want to know, oh, it's pioneer such and such, or it's DeKalb such and such. And they, they know every little thing about, you know, different companies and different hybrids or varieties within that company. Okay. When it comes to cover crops, it's radish or it's, <laughs> you know, annual ryegrass. And sometimes guys can confuse that with cereal rye, you know, it's, uh, you know, yes, it's, yes. Uh, nowhere close to the definition. How, how do people know what they're getting? Uh, and is there differences and what are those differences and why does it matter? There are some differences in radish. There's, um, I think the, the responsible producers of dealers are all working with the varieties that are very similar at this point. Uh, early on, there were some varieties that would bolt after 30 days and want to make a, go out and reproduce and make a flower. Right. The problem when a radish goes reproductive the, the root growth, growth stops. So that was one of our selections was something that bolted as late as possible so we could maximize root growth. Um, On the other hand, doesn't that make it a little difficult for you for seed production? Not in our region. Okay. Because typically, you have the long days. Because uh, we got the long days. Um, you know, typically cover crops are planted after July 15th and radish really doesn't, good varieties of radish don't want to go reproductive after July 15th. Um, some of the off types will. So, um, you know, it's a really you want to work with people, you know, and you want to work with a dealer who's bringing in material, the same material year after year. Because if you're working with a dealer who's buying the lowest priced product, he might have a different product every different year. And then you're not going to have consistency and you're not going to know what to expect. So, if, but really, it's us about, you know, the quality of our production and the consistency of our product. I mean, that's what our dealers are looking for, that every time they put it out, they're going to have similar or the same results they had the year before. So one of the things that um, let's talk a little bit about the annual ryegrass. And one of the things that Mike Plummer really uh, talked about a lot when he was uh, with us and, and teaching guys how to grow annual ryegrass was the importance of having a stated variety, you know, uh, versus just a variety, not stated type of annual ryegrass. And because you can have, you know, four, eight different phenotypes within there, and you're trying to kill all of them with a chemical termination. And one might be the dominant that grew early. It's covering up all the small ones underneath of it. Talk about that to, to folks and why that's important to have, uh, you know, uh, ryegrass varieties in particular, or other color crops that might apply to in order to have a consistent uh, termination experience? Well, yeah, we grow a lot of ryegrass in the Willamette Valley, and there are very different different subtypes, I will say. Some, some are early, some are late. Um, some have real small leaves, some have big leaves, um, and each one has its fit. But when it's a product that you're going to put out in the fall, you need it to 
it kind of depends, you know, if you plant it early and you're going to graze it, you want something that's a little faster, a little more of a racehorse um, to get it up and going and then graze it. If it's not going to be grazed, you want something that's a little slower, a little finer leaf structure so the winter kill doesn't get to it. Um, and then in the spring, you need something that starts growing in fairly cool days so you can get some size to it. So when it is time to spread out, you've got the leaf area to absorb the to absorb your herbicide. So the price, so you really need a dedicated production program. A lot of the to so you're getting the same product off a field every year. And when I say dedicated production, you know, when we go to grow ryegrass for the cover crop market, we're putting on a field, we're looking for fields that haven't had ryegrass on them for three or four or five years because it will volunteer and there will be a seed bank of the prior variety that was grown. So we just can't grow golf one year and KB Royal the next, because we're not gonna harvest KB Royal. We're gonna harvest a cross between golf and KB Royal, and it won't be the product that we're advertising and selling. So you gotta have dedicated growers who are in your program every year so that the product in the bag is consistent. Um, it's very easy for a seed company to go out and place acres with a variety, but if there's no field history involved, the variety that's in what's in the bag is not the variety that was planted. So it's a uh, it's it is a little more cost to it and a lot more management um, to make sure that there's everything everything stays true to type all the way through the production system. In in the marketplace, is how much of an issue is that these days, or is that has that gotten better or is it still the wild west on we've got so much demand we're we're throwing every sweeping we have out of every bin into a bag to send it out it is still an issue in places um unfortunately and it's ryegrass market is tough it's a low margin product and if somebody can make a penny that's that might double that might double your margin some years so you know, working with people who do produce the same thing every year is very important. So uh, it's, not, it's not just getting a variety, a stated variety. It's also knowing the producer of that stated variety in order to make sure you're getting what you're hoping for. Correct. You, you, there's got to be a production system in place. It can't be just go plant it and harvest it. Okay. So. And that's really important again, because like you said, some will get growing faster in the spring, some later. They can cover each other up. They don't terminate. And in my opinion, on annual ryegrass for, you know, no-till production, you have to, the only option is terminate with glyphosate that I'm aware of because it has such a massive root system underneath of it. Uh, but if my experience is if you don't kill it on the first time, you have made it professionally mad. And <laughs> it becomes hard to terminate <laughs> the second time. <laughs> yes, it becomes obnoxious obnoxious it's an obnoxious yes. weed not <laughs> not a noxious weed <laughs> and, and that's you know that's been a lot of education you know to our customers that you know don't go out there the first spray day and try and kill it it needs to be actively growing you got to know your temperatures what is it above 55 degrees sunny growing for at least two hours yeah uh, you know, you know day. you know nick bowers and wayne kaiser who we bought kb seed from a couple of years ago their motto was, if you haven't mowed your yard twice, don't go spray your annual ryegrass. That's a great, but what if it's no mow May? You know, that's the latest trend here, Garth. Uh, 
you're going to have some pretty tall ryegrass back east. Yeah, I don't keep up on the latest trends. But... I know, I know. <laughs> That's why I threw that in there for you. <laughs> but I um, uh, talk about the other things. Harry Vetch, I I think um, probably really underutilized um, and a lot of growth potential in that. I mean, it's used a lot in and common vetch are used a lot in organic production. Mm -hmm. because the cost point and those kind of things, don't you think that's underutilized in conventional cover cropping? I do. Um, one of the problems, and, and it will be used more and more in the future, um, it's a slow learning curve for people. To really maximize hairy vetch, you need to let it mature. And a lot of, a lot of farms are used to, when their neighbors are planting, they want to be planting. And that's a hard cycle to break. I mean, I see that in my neighborhood. It makes me, when my neighbors are doing something, I want to be doing something. Even if it's, you know, it's it's just a habit. And it's, um, so I understand the struggle with that. But the guys that are really utilizing Harry Batch and making it work, they're willing to wait two or three weeks to let that crop maximize the benefits. And that benefits are maximized at bloom? Maximized at bloom, yes. Yeah. And then I think another one of the tricks that you like to see is some sort of a grass with it. Um, you know, if you're typically planting that in a mix with a triticale or something, uh, wheat, rye, whatever, yep. uh, in order to not just have all that nitrogen with nothing to buffer it carbon wise, correct? We see a lot of straight hairy vetch and we see a lot of hairy vetch in blends and everybody's got a different idea. I, you know, Cameron Mills, great customer of ours out of Indiana. He's he uses a lot of hairy vetch and annual ryegrass. Very happy with his program. Um, hairy grass, yeah. Everything you mentioned, the cereal rise, the wheat. That's. I think it kind of helps the hairy vetch. It helps hold it off the ground, um, and then it rolls and crimps a little better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's certainly one that should be a part of a mix. Yeah, you bet. What are other cover crops you see that are going to uh, become more and more popular in the future guys need to be looking at or uh, thinking about having as a part of their mix? Um, we really like, you know, the, the majority of our Facelia sales probably go to the bee habitat market. But we really, if it can be planted in a timely fashion, you know, that first August area, it has a root structure that's unique to anything I've seen. It really has, well, Dave Brandt, bless the man. Um, you know, he he told me that a, one facilia plant would have enough roots to fill a five-gallon bucket. And that's hard to believe till you go out and you start digging in a facilia field. It, we grow some, we are on some heavy clay soils and it will change the soil structure in one season. Really? Yes. Yeah, ground ground that would slab and be cloddy, just as mellow the next year. So I really would like to see that one studied a little more, and uh, hopefully utilized a little more. And then the side benefits are it is it's it's an incredible pollinator habitat, incredible insect habitat. And today, really, it's used as a, a splash. So we we do a lot of work with green cover seed, and and with some other uh, suppliers that are doing mixes that are dealers of yours, and. Um, you know, they, they, it's kind of a splash in there for the pollinators, right? It's not, right. not a high rate uh, to probably affect the, the soil changes you're talking about. What, what kind of rates you see would it take to do something like that, Garth? 
Well, when we're growing up for seed, we're planting four or five pounds an acre. But it's, you know, it's 200,000 seeds per pound. So we're a million pounds per million seeds per acre. Mm-hmm. So um, density and, is essentially wheat on plants per acre, if you will. Right, right. So that's hard to hard to think on plants per acre. Everybody always talks to pounds until they go to corn and soybeans. It's amazing how that's right. Happens. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's all about seed count when you really think about it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What other, so Phasalia, definitely have to take a, a harder look at. Anything else you see that's kind of trending up and other crops you're considering adding, you know, in number 13? Well, the- we're looking at a, a vetch. Um, it's in a seed breeding program right now. I'm not really allowed to say much about it. Sure. Um, it's going to add first, uh, if it makes seed. I think the problem is we've got to be able to make enough seed breaker on our end mm-hmm. to sell it at a reasonable price on your end. So it's going to, if we can get it to make seed, um, it's going to be a viable product, probably more, maybe not far up north. I don't know that it has a winter hardiness yet. That's going to be the next step in the breeding program. I, you know, the legumes are, we got to find a way to get more legumes in and get more legumes to produce. Um, You know, nitrogen prices, they have come down. But they're going to be volatile for the near future, probably long term, realistically, with the with the energy policies we're seeing throughout the world. So we got to work harder on getting more legumes to be reliable in the systems that we're using them in. You think most of that's going to come from more of the vetch category than the clover category, just because they're potential? Uh, potential. And I think the vetches are easier to plant into than the clovers. Uh so I think that's going to have an effect on the on the marketplace and easier to terminate. I mean, uh, roller crimper terminating on a vetch is not an issue, right? No, yeah. clover you just help it regrow. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yep. Now yeah. you you produce crimson clover, don't you? I person we don't grow it on our farm, but we have neighbors that grow it and we market it for them. Okay. So yeah, and then that and that's some, that one's we've been selling more and more crimson every year. Yeah. Yeah, any of the, do you work with any of the Persian clovers or, or isn't there some new varieties in there? There are. We don't. Um, it's really a struggle to work on pallet quantities for us. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where those are right now. There are a couple seed companies that specialize on them, in them. And we really, as a seed industry, in the Willamette Valley, they're all my neighbors and friends, so I don't try and step on their toes. Mm-hmm. Um we do what we do and they do what they do. And, and a lot of times we trade seed amongst ourselves. So we try and keep, you know, just because somebody has something good, I'm not going to run out and try and take it from them. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know how that worked. If that was grown there locally also, or. Yep. And those things. Good. Good. Um, No, I, I, I agree with you. The The programs, they kind of come and go here and there, but it's neat to see that there is some sticking power other than just the guy trying to get a five, 10, $15 an acre, you know, kickback for doing a cover crop. Right. And I do think it's growing. I just wish it would grow at a, at a faster rate than what it is, you know, cause there's just so many benefits associated with them. Um, what do you, I mean, potential energy thing, what are you think some other things it'll take to, to get us growing at a little better rate than what we are today well i i am not a fan of government programs 
mostly because I don't like there's too many of them <laughs> and they're not consistent. Um, there's going to be some watershed issues that are certainly going to have to be addressed. You know, the erosion, there's too much widespread erosion. And, um, you know, from what I see in my neighborhood, there are farmers that don't care. And, uh, you know, it's when people don't care that regulators get involved. Um, you know, there's there's been enough education. I think everybody knows erosion is a problem. But until it, it, you know, and apparently it's not affecting their pocketbooks hard enough to make them make changes. So there's going to be regulations and they're probably not going to be ideal. They're probably going to be implemented as nicely as we, you and I'd like them to be. But that's going to drive some of this. Um, and I think, you know, the next generation is going to have a different mindset than the current generation on those farms. You know, our farm is not the same as it was 20 years ago. Um, you know, when, when the younger generation takes over farm, there are changes that are made. So I'm optimistic about that. Um, you know, the majority of America is still family farms and those are families are making decisions. And as a younger generation comes in, there will be different ideas. And so I think we got to stay on top of the education as you think, it seems like we've been doing it forever, but we're going to probably have to keep doing it. And, uh, so, you know, in some ways that's exciting. I like getting out and meeting people. I know you do. Um, and it will get there. It's just, like you say, it's not going to happen as fast as either one of us would like it to. Yeah. Speaking about having family involved, uh, this is definitely a family operation. Your your wife helps you with, with all of the marketing too, and uh, your youngest daughter too, correct? My youngest daughter, yeah. She graduated from college a year ago and came back to here full time. Um, so how long before you can retire, Garth? I mean, uh, or just become the irrigation guy? Uh, well, if you ask them, not soon enough. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, I I like what I do. I'm going to keep doing it for a while. Good. So, Good. But I'm, I'm happy to have my daughter alongside me in the seed business. She's probably taken 70% of that off my plate. Um which is good for the company and it's good for me and it's good for our farm. It's, well, there were days I was having to make choices. Do I focus on the farm or do I focus on the seed company? And there's just not enough hours in the day when that happens. So, so we're in a better position now. Um, we got great employees, great family. So the future's bright, pretty excited about it. That's, that's good. Um, no, when you, you mentioned Cameron and, and he's a great resource and there's, there's other people out there and, you know, we just, just lost Dave, but he's provided quite a, quite a leadership source for everybody. I think there is quite a, quite a groundswell coming and uh, we're definitely going to need you to raise more and more seed to, to meet our, meet our needs out here. Um, are you, uh, you know, you're, you're, what will it take to, to meet those needs? I mean, a seed company, you anticipate it continuing to grow and um, uh, to be able to serve guys or what, what do you see um, needs there to, to it's, hit those targets? It's a, it's a slow growth because yeah. when we the, the biggest problem is on the seed company side is capital because we will harvest seed in August that won't be sold till the next May or June. 
and our growers, they they put the effort in to grow it, so we need to pay them. Um, so this time of year, our operating line is just about maxed out. So what we need is people to start buying CD earlier. <laughs> but, you know, we're just got a system. We're going to grow it five or seven percent a year um, and do what we can. I don't know that I'm in a race to be the fastest growing seed business because I really want to take care of our current customers. And I want our current, you know, customers being the local dealers in throughout the Midwest. And I want to see them grow. So as they grow, we grow. Um, there is enough production in the Willamette Valley that we can we can continue to grow. Um, we're coming out of a situation where grass seed prices have been historically high. Those seem to be trending down. When grass seed prices drop, it, there are growers who are looking for rotational crops or, or options. So that's where we are now. We, we we have more growers contact us to grow seed this year than we have in several years. So, so we continue to build relationships with our neighbors up and down the Willamette Valley um, for the opportunities, whether it's today or three or four years from now. So I, I think we'll be fine on that front. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, anything else we should have uh, visited about today or, or ideas, uh, thoughts for, for the future and where, where cover crops are heading? It's really, it, that's a tough question. Um, you know, things are plugging along pretty well right now. Um, I don't know that I have a good answer for you, Monty. I'm just, I'm looking at things and happy with where they're at. I mean, I, mean, I know growth needs to occur. The economy kind of scares me a little bit. Um, you know, interest rates are high. That affects my farm. It affects the farms of my customers. Um, you know, and decisions ultimately are often financial. And they have to be. Because I got to be in business next year. They got to be in business next year. So and I don't know that anybody's making the huge investments that we'd like to make, mm -hmm. you know, if we had ideal conditions. So the economy, the economy is the biggest concern for me. Because it, it changes people's attitudes and attitudes are what makes decisions. Right. And and then the other thing we've got too is commodity prices are trending down. Yep. So, you know, that at the moment, you know, especially the new growth, uh, new growth with cover crop producers is, is they consider it a, a luxury or a unnecessary thing at the beginning. Right. Uh, so uh, getting the new customers to, to go on when prices are low is probably a little bit harder than, than when times are good. So when we right. shoot a dollar off the price of corn, all of a sudden people get a little more antsy. So. Yes. As they should. I mean, you, right. We all want to farm next year. Exactly. That's yep. a very important point. Yeah. Well, I, uh, sometime you're going to have to make your way back here during your growing season. So you can get out into your second, uh, soybean field. It seems like I only see you in the winter at, uh, I did see it Dave's there in April last year, but, uh, uh, typically only see you through the winter months at the, in the winter meetings, but, uh, well, yes, having a seed company is a horrible business model because I spend my winters in the Midwest. I, yes. I should have a business where I go to Hawaii something in the winter, but we go, we go breeding to, programs you need in Hawaii, like everybody else. I probably should. Yes. There's, I have a lot to learn. I'm a slow learner, so we'll get there eventually. 
you know, the other thing you were mentioning about the cost of capital, that's uh, one of the bad parts about a year that you have good yields, isn't it? Because absolutely now you yeah. have to buy a three year supply of, of yields in an incredible year, right? And right. sit on that and dole it out. So, well, the other issue is, you know, my, my contracts with my growers are at a fixed price. If we overproduce, typically the price goes down for, for what I can sell it for. So, you know, it's, it's a big balancing act, keeping all the dollars in play in this business. Right. And then yeah. figuring out ways to get growers to, to make, you know, share some of the risk or something. Yep. Uh, and uh, getting the cover crop, getting the farmer to make the cover crop order now versus from the combine cab, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't know the answer to that one. I think it's probably been that way forever. So. <laughs> they figured out how to do it in the corn and soybean world. You can figure it out somehow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, but no, I, I, you know, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule and, and sharing with a little bit about what you got going on there. Um, Garth is uh, uh, very innovative, uh, has a lot of crops that he grows and deals with and, and takes it all the way to the end user. So he's not just taking it and then selling it at the, at the local elevator and hoping somebody just takes it and does something with it. You know, he's cleaning it, processing, bagging, distributing, and uh, you know, all the financial things behind it and the marketing associated with that so um it's it, it's quite an adventure most most farmers don't don't understand all the aspects that uh go through something that like what you're doing especially and then you're doing it on 12 different crops so um i'm surprised you could sit still this long yeah it's been a little tough it's hard it's easy to look out the window and think i gotta run but <laughs> <laughs> well i think we'll let you do just that garth i do appreciate your time today and and sharing a little bit about where cover crops and and the specialty crops come from and and how you do it well thank you bonnie it's been a pleasure to be here always always good to visit with you all right take care garth thank you Thanks for listening to this conversation today. It's great to learn from folks that are walking the walk. I appreciate Garth's willingness to share his business journey in helping growers adopt cover crops and share his knowledge about how to make it work. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.